Hey, uh, out there, good morning again. Awesome to see you. Welcome. Um, one more bit of community news. I can't share it quite as enthusiastically as uh, Caleb could have today, but um, right after the service in the West Hall, uh, we've talked about last week uh, about this opportunity with Journey Home to do some ministry with refugees in our community uh, that for a short-term kind of uh, deal for the next three months. And so if you're interested in, in being part of our, our small team that is going to be strategizing around that, they're meeting today in the West Hall after both our services to kind of just assemble a little bit of a team. And uh, by showing up, you don't say you're in. You can actually t- treat that as a, an opportunity to get more information. But we just have an opportunity to love on some uh, newcomers, brand new to the country, and we'd love to, to show them God's love. And uh, if you want to be part of that after the service, West Hall. If you have a Bible this morning, uh, it might be helpful for you, or you can uh, grab one at our back info desk but, uh, or on your device. We're looking at Matthew chapter 9. We're going to cover a fair amount of ground today. Um, we're starting at verse 14, so kind of buckle up and get ready. It's going to be good. Um, Matthew 9, verse 14. Then John's disciples came and asked him, How is it that we and the Pharisees fast often, but your disciples do not fast? Jesus answered, How can the guests of the bridegroom mourn while he is with them? The time will come when the bridegroom will be taken away from them, then they will will fast. No one sews a patch of unshrunk cloth on an old garment, for the patch will pull away from the garment, making the tear worse. Neither do people pour new wine into old wineskins, If they do, the wine will run out and the wineskins will be ruined. No, they pour new wine into new wineskins and both are preserved. While he was saying this, a synagogue leader came and knelt before him and said, My daughter has just died, but come and put your hand on her and she will live. Jesus got up and went with him and so did his disciples. Just then a woman who had been subjected to bleeding for 12 years came up behind him and touched the edge of his cloak. She said to herself, if I only touch his cloak, I will be healed. And Jesus turned to her and said, take heart, daughter, he said, your faith has healed you. And the woman was healed at that moment. When Jesus entered the synagogue leader's house and saw the noisy crowd and people playing pipes, he said, go away. The girl is not dead, but asleep. But they laughed at him. After the crowd had been put outside, he went in and took the girl by the hand, and she got up. News of this spread all through that region. As Jesus went on from there, two blind men followed him, calling out, Have mercy on us, son of David. When he had gone indoors, the blind men came to him, and he asked them, Do you believe that I am able to do this? Yes, Lord, they replied. Then he touched their eyes and said, according to your faith, it has let it be done to you. And their sight was restored. And Jesus warned them sternly, see that no one knows about this. But they went out and spread the news about him all over that region. While they were going out, a man who was demon-possessed and could not talk was brought to Jesus. And when the demon was driven out, the man who had been mute spoke. The crowd was amazed and said, nothing like this has ever been seen in Israel. But the Pharisees said, it is by the prince of demons that he drives out demons. So God, uh, we're grateful for your word. We're grateful for Matthew's window into the life of Jesus through these stories 
and teachings. And uh, Lord, we pray, would we be those who hear, those who are open to what you might want to do in our lives through these words, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Um, I brought an artifact this morning to church. Uh, my Minolta X700 camera. When our, our kids were small, up until they were maybe the age of seven or eight, this is what I recorded their little lives on. But then at around that time, we set this aside, as, as did most of the planet when it came to film cameras. Well, you know, the, the world went digital, and so did we. Digital photography disrupted an entire industry, photographic industry. And this word disruptor gets thrown a lot uh, around a lot in our days. Um, Brian Chesky is considered such a person. He's been called a disruptor because he and a few friends back in 2007, they formed a little company called Airbnb, which turned the hospitality industry upside down. It changed the, the way a lot of us travel. In fact, for Angel and I, that's probably the first place we go to when we think of staying somewhere other than our home. Uh, and then we could, if we wanted to think of disrupting industries, we could talk about Amazon and, and book sales, right? Uh, who, who goes to bookstores, actual book and more, you know, brick and mortar stores? Yeah, they're still there, barely. Uh, or Uber and ride sharing. We could talk about Netflix and DVDs, or we could talk about, you know, music streaming and what's your, your method, previous method of choice? Eight track tapes, some of you? Albums? Spotify, all those things. So how did these individuals and these companies do this? Well, they saw there was a, a new group of people with new values. They saw this thing kind of emerging in the world, and they kind of leapt at it. They, they jumped on it and capitalized on it. What they did was they had eyes for the new thing. And now that the new thing is here, everything that came before is changing. Things will never go back the same. You, you hardly imagine going back. I, I, I don't think I could make this work anymore. Well, you might call Jesus the ultimate disruptor. Certainly when you read our text today, Jesus is approached by John's disciples, John the Baptist, and he's asked about fasting. By the way, not going to talk about fasting per se today. We did a message on that in October. If you're interested, you can go back and listen. But these disciples of Jesus are questioned about fasting, and they're wondering as they watch Jesus' disciples who aren't fasting, it makes them think, is Jesus legit? Is he real? Like, I mean, what's going on here? He seems to have thrown out kind of a, a core practice of the faith. Is Jesus right? Maybe it's just me, but I wonder if John's disciples are coming at this with what you might call a religious spirit. By the way, if you're new to church, you probably think that everything we do here on a Sunday morning is religious. <laughs> probably for, for some of us, though, being called religious might get a bit of a reaction in your heart. You don't want to be, we don't want to be thought of as religious, but let's face it, many of your unchurched friends, they think you're religious, right? <laughs> they think you're a little bit, you know, over the top. My idea here is of a religious spirit is not just a description of somebody who has faith, but let me give you an example. Um, I remember when I was a new Christian, uh, I went over to a couple guys in our church uh, to their home, and I was in their living room hanging with them, and their dad walked in, and their dad, uh, who knew I was the pastor's kid, 
and really quite abruptly says, so Derwin, what Bible version do you read? And uh, I grew up in a home where we read the New International Version, the NIV. And so I, I said NIV, and the guy just kind of exploded with this rant about how the NIV was just a corrupt version of the Bible. And he went on to tell me how the King James Version, the 500-year-old King James Version, was the only, you know, superior anointed version from God. And he went on for a long time, and it scared me. And I was nervous around that guy at church ever since. <laughs> just an aside, Lynn can tell you this. We had a, a newcomer to Hillside a few months ago, and, and at the, the front door, I, I think we were told that we were not a good church because we weren't using the King James Version. So that's still going around a little bit. Um, that's kind of a religious spirit, you know, being hyper-protective and potentially not open to the new. And often it's a, a little bit more subtle. It's, it's maybe a little bit more personal, and it can be about having this kind of sense of, of moral superiority over other people. I've got this thing going on, and you're kind of deficient, it's, it's about having this moral or, or spiritual leg up over someone. I, I love Jesus' response in verse 15. He said this, he said, How can the guests of the bridegroom mourn while he is with them? The time will come when the bridegroom will be taken from them, then they will fast. He's like, my disciples are going to fast. There's a time for fasting. Now is not that time. I'm here now. I said last week that Angel and I, we get to go to a lot of weddings. Uh, and uh, I love the feasting part of weddings. And we've, we've seen an extraordinary range of the kind of food that gets served from, from elaborate feasts to, to actually one of my favorites a couple of years ago. One of our, one of our members, they, they did pizza and beer. <laughs> and it was me and Ed's. It was, it was great. Um, I, my personal favorite food at weddings is and this has become a trend in recent years, and I've told my sons they must have one at their wedding if they ever get married, is those little candy bars. You know, like the little candy stations where those, those various jars of confectionery that they seem to have chosen directly from my childhood. And it's like little kids are there, they got a little scoop, and they're like putting it into a little, little bag, and then I join them, and I'm putting a, a lot in a big bag. That I, it's, it's my favorite part about weddings. So good. But here's the thing. It would be silly to show up at a wedding and to say, sorry, I'm fasting, <laughs> right? It'd be even worse to show up at a wedding and say, sorry, I'm fasting, and then look down on all those people who are feasting, right? It wouldn't be good. Kind of turning your nose down at them. It'd be wrong. It would be just bad timing because it's a celebration. And it's like Jesus is saying, I'm here throw a party. <laughs> it's party time. Let's feast. It's time to eat. He goes on to use two metaphors, wineskins and clothing, to give us an idea that there is this kind of new era that has come with his coming. Verse 16 says, no one sews a patch of unshrunk cloth on an old garment, for the patch will pull away from the garment, making the tear worse. He says, neither do people pour new wine into old wineskins. If they do, the skins will burst. The wine will run out and the wineskins will be ruined. No, they pour new wine into new wineskins and both are preserved. Here's what he's saying. Let's say you get a hole in your pants or a, a hole in your sweater and, and you want to repair it. And you find some material, you patch that hole with a new material. 
But the catch is, the pants have already been washed and the material hasn't, so that when you put it through the wash, that new material will shrink at a different rate than the old material, and potentially tear. And then he gives the illustration of wineskins. Now, by the way, ancient wineskins were actually kind of gross. <laughs> they were uh, animal skins that were kind of stitched together at the ends and then filled with wine, and, and it was kind of messy and, and, and we'd think of as gross. But what he's saying is, if, if you have an old wineskin, and it's kind of weathered and, and dried and cracked, if you were to put new wine in there, with the fermenting and the bubbling going on, the, the gases would expand and it'll wreck and burst the wineskin and ruin the wine. What is Jesus saying by these metaphors? He's saying new things don't fit into old frameworks. And the new is here. It's, it's not going to fit in the old framework. It's it, like you guys are, are now living under. Now what Jesus is specifically referring to here with the fasting example, what is he talking about? He's referring to structures and functions around the laws of Moses. And the whole point of the passage is to kind of contrast the ministry of, the, of John the Baptist, which was kind of centered on the laws of Moses, and, and with the ministry of Jesus. And we'll see this again happening in, in a couple of chapters in, in chapter 11. John the Baptist, you'll remember him, he was kind of an old covenant prophet. He, he preached, as I said, right out of the law of Moses. His message was essentially one of baptism and repentance. Come and repent of the wrong that you've been doing and get clean. And it was mostly a, about convincing people of their wrongdoing. And this is what he did. He, he called people out. He called everybody out, the Israelites, out on their sin. And where did he do this? He did it in the wilderness. Kind of, it, it, It's a throwback to Moses' ministry in the wilderness. And we're told he wore camel hair, which... I mean, camel hair, think about it. It's going to make a comeback one of these days, don't you think? Everything does. Just hold on to your old clothes. It'll be in vogue 10 years from now. But he ate this wilderness diet. We're told locusts and honey, yum. And he and his disciples, the picture is kind of like them living this monastic life in the wilderness, like monks or living this aesthetic life, and they're fasting. But Jesus is very different to John the Baptist. Jesus represents the new covenant. It means he's bringing in an entirely new era that we get to enjoy even now. It's no longer just a baptism of repentance, but it says, we're told, it's a baptism of, of fire and the Holy Spirit. His primary message is not about our wrong and our wrongdoing. His primary message is about the arrival of a good thing, that the kingdom has come and, and you can be in on it. Yes, repent. Why? So you can get in on the new thing. It's for you. What does this mean for us? Well, for one, it means that Jesus' message must take precedence over the old covenant. And it's, it affects how we actually read the Bible. We read it now through the lens of Jesus. Jesus came to fulfill the Old Testament law. And we actually now read the, the Old Testament and the Old Covenant through the eyes of Jesus. And you know what? John the Baptist, I think he understood this because you'll, maybe some of you will remember what he said. He actually said, I must decrease and you must increase. He knew it. Things are not like they once were and we're not going back to that. 
So Jesus explains this, but then actually you carry on in the chapter and we see him acting out or, or demonstrating what this looks like. What, what, do we, what do we learn about the old wineskin and the new wineskin through the rest of these stories? For example, verse 20, story, beautiful story of this woman who for 12 years has suffered with a blood condition. In that culture, this would put her on the outside. Never been able to worship or go to the temple, go to the synagogue. And uh, she boldly reaches out to Jesus with, with just a little bit of hope and touches him, and she's healed. What was the old wineskin? Well, there was a, a law that classified that woman as unclean and untouchable. But with Jesus, that law is now over. That barrier is gone, and now the new wineskin is that that faith in Jesus can have a healing effect. Something new is here. By the way, this is often on my heart for us at Hillside, a healing ministry for sure, but I just think there are members in our congregation who have suffered for many, many years, maybe decades even, with some sort of chronic illness or suffering. Something has been off in your body maybe for years, and even with that, with a new covenant, we're not to lose hope. We don't live under the old. We live in the new, where Jesus receives us, and he's with us, and sometimes he heals us. Amen? Sometimes he's actually reaching out to us and, and healing us. It's not the other way around most often. It's most often he's reaching our way. And when he doesn't heal, he always gives comfort and hope and strength that's available to us in the kingdom. Another example, verse 23, Jesus beautifully brings a dead girl back to life. A father desperate says, can you come and heal my daughter? She's, she's gone. And, and we see, and we learn from the story that in the, under the old covenant, death is just normal. And death is the end. Death happens. And kind of the best that we can do is kind of try to, to find some meaning in it. But the new covenant is here, and it means that people... Rise from the dead. Resurrection is here. That's the new wine. And then verse 33 to 34. The old wineskin, we have people tormented and struggling, demon-possessed. We, we don't know what's going on, but there's chaos inside them, and, and there's no hope. And the new wineskin is we now have authority through Jesus instead of fear. There can be deliverance from every kind of brokenness. We, we, we looked at this a few weeks ago, how, how followers of Jesus carry around with them, within them, a piece of the kingdom. We carry around with us authority over darkness, which means we never need to be afraid of the dark. So good. But when we're confronted with the kingdom, this, this new covenant that came in Jesus, there's, there's really only two responses. Verse 33, we see the first response. And when the demon was driven out, the man who had been mute spoke. The crowd was amazed and said, nothing like this has ever been seen in Israel. They're like, wow, we've never seen anything like this before. This is something new. But listen to the second response in verse 34. But the Pharisees said, it is by the prince of demons that he drives out demons. Essentially, this is a, a rejection of the new thing, you know? And, and you know what? It's been a common thing all the way since the time of Jesus to attribute God's love and grace and his, 
his miraculous and extravagant uh, works in our world to the enemy. You ever seen that? Have you ever done that? Uh, when I was a new Christian, um, I was a pretty serious guy. Like, I was committed. Um, and uh, a couple years after I, I came to Christ, I traveled to the UK and was going to a little Bible college there, and we were traveling for a weekend in Edinburgh. And while we were in Edinburgh, uh, a group of my friends and I, we, we wanted to attend church on the Sunday morning. It was a Remembrance Day weekend, so it was a holiday weekend. And uh, we, we showed up just at a church that was closest to our, our bed and breakfast. And as we walked into this church, I knew right off the bat this was different than any church I'd ever been to before. And, and uh, singing began, and there were drums, and there were girls with flags, waving the flags, and people were raising their hands. Imagine that. They were raising their hands, and there was shrouding and hollering, and there was like this just crazy environment, and it was so strange to me. I'd never been in a service like that before in my life. I don't think I've ever felt up until that point, I don't know if I'd ever felt that uncomfortable. And I remember walking out of that church and, you know, kind of thinking, whatever that was, that wasn't God. That's what I felt. That's the judgment that I gave on that church in that day. Fast forward. <laughs> to my life now. And by the way, uh, I love how Kevin encouraged us to raise our hands. Do you know, you know what I found? Uh, one of the reasons I raise my hands, Dallas Willard taught me this. Uh, when I raise my hands, and, and, and you can try this. I'd love to see you try this now, but I know you won't because you're Canadian. But uh, I find, and, and, and there's just, I think, physiological truth to this, that you raise your hands and your spirits lift. You try that. You're feeling down someday? Just try raising your hands to heaven. And see if it doesn't, even in a minor way, and, it, and whatever, it's, if it's a placebo, whatever. But um, I, I do it sometimes just because I want to lift up my heart to God, and sometimes lifting up my hands helps. And it's a reason for maybe you to consider trying that. But back to this church that, that I was judging, it, it was a new thing, and I couldn't see it. You know, when we see a religious spirit that's, the operating word seems to be control. It seems to be control, but God's extravagant grace, as we find, it cannot be controlled. It, it can't be boxed up. It's always kind of breaking boundaries. But with this religious desire to kind of tr control, it's, it's about figuring God out, like getting him nailed down so that we understand him and so that we can have we can manage our expectations around God, right? We want to have an idea of what he's going to do next before he does it. We do not like uncertainty. We want him to fit our framework. And then sometimes things that are good can be then chalked up to Satan. And it can be so easy to miss the new thing. Now, if it turns out that we're still not clear on this, the new thing is about freedom. In fact, Matthew is just a master craftsman here. This whole chapter is about freedom. Verse 1 to 8, we see it, freedom from sin, Jesus forgiving that paralyzed man. We see it in verse 9 to 13, freedom from separatism. You know, Matthew, who shouldn't be included in the family of God, he's a tax collector, an unclean sinner, is welcome. And Jesus makes it clear I'm going to eat with outsiders, and I'm going to love them, and I'm going to include them. And so we get freedom from separatism, this, this sense of us and them. 
And then the story about fasting, verse 14 to 17. We get freedom from what you might call scrupulosity. I love that word. I've, I've been saying it to my friends all this week, scrupulosity. Um, it, it's a word I stole right from Dale Bruner, a New Testament commentator. And scrupulosity, it's, it's actually can be defined as a pathological guilt or anxiety about moral or religious issues. Some of, some of my reading described it as a kind of religious OCD, obsessive compulsive disorder, and it manifests into a kind of fear and anxiety that you'll, you never quite measure up to God. Anyone ever suffer from that just a little? I'm sure most of us have felt that. But it also can kind of breed the kind of religion that misses the kind of freedom Jesus came to bring. Talking about fasting for a minute here, fasting became a way of measuring who's in and who's out, right? And the fear of John's disciples and, and the Pharisees is maybe some are getting in who shouldn't get in. And, and, and Jesus just doesn't play the game. He doesn't do the us and them. True fasting, biblical fasting, is about showing our devotion to God. Like It's a way of saying we're, we're with you, God. We want your ways. It's a way of demonstrating our dependence on his provision. But instead it had become an exercise that was repeated over and over and over again as a measurement of who's in and who's out. That's a religious spirit. And a key component to this is the kind of comparing that goes on. John's disciples are comparing Jesus' disciples, themselves to Jesus' disciples, and Jesus' disciples are found wanting. They're coming up short. This is kind of important in this story, so let's just talk about comparing for a minute because we all kind of do this. I heard someone once say comparing is pretty much humankind's most common self-esteem strategy. It's our most common way to feel better about ourselves. We determine our worth by measuring ourselves over and against others, right? It's a whole social media deal. We could talk about that today. For instance, just let me give you an example from my own life. I, I usually carry this confidence that when I'm driving, that every other driver on the road is worse than I am, that I'm a better driver than anyone on the road. And uh, I, can, I can be judgmental towards drivers who don't measure up to my standards, which are pretty exacting in some certain areas. Like just try, you know, driving slow in the fast lane when I'm in the fast lane and they're just ahead of you. Anyone, any, like, mm, getting frustrated just thinking about it. Funny, uh, I can look at people who make more money than I do and I can think they're materialistic. And I can look at people who, you know, make less money than I do and think they're lazy. <laughs> I, can, I can think of people who are, uh, you know, chubbier than me, and I can think of them as self -dis uh, you know, poorly self-disciplined. They have no self-discipline. And I can look at people who are thinner than me, and I think they're vain and egotistical. <laughs> I think everyone's in on this. We, we might look down on those who are, are more progressive to us on one end or or more conservative on the other, kind of challenge you. Just as you kind of journey through your days this week, track how much judging you do as you go along, how much comparing you do with other people. We do it all the time. But it helps us feel like we've got a leg up on others. And see, a religious person, what we tend to do is we, we tend to very easily reject wrongdoing. We, we know that's bad. But what we don't do is we actually 
Or what we often do in return is we hold on to our right doing. We kind of elevate our virtue as a way of saying, see, I'm good. See, I'm not like them. And so I'm deserving of your kindness, God. That's religion. And Jesus won't play this game because his way is so much better. So so to destroy this way of thinking, this religious mindset, Jesus says, we're actually going to need a a new wineskin here because what I'm doing is going to blow your wineskin up. Kaboom. New wine, he heals. He raises the dead. He gives sight to the blind. He frees the oppressed. He chooses and blesses those who who don't measure up. How awesome is that? And folks, I, I have a sense... He wants to free some of us this morning into the new wine. And he's, he's looking for people. He's always looking for people who are willing to, to stretch, who are open to receive the new wine. So I want to ask just in our final minutes here, how do we make room for the new thing? How do we make room for the new wine that God wants to pour into you and to me? Two things I think that are helpful to this. Uh, the Spirit of God and the blood of Christ. The Spirit of God and the blood of Christ. These are the two components of the kingdom, the Spirit of God and the blood of Jesus. You know, uh, think for a second, for those of you who know the book of Acts and the story of the early church, in Acts 2, when the Holy Spirit comes upon the new, this new church, on the people of Pentecost, um, it's kind of wild because people are speaking in tongues, and I, I'd imagine it's kind of like exuberant worship happening and, and praising, and all this kind of stuff is going as they, they experience God and, and the, the people around, they actually kind of poke fun at them and laugh at them, accusing them of a what? Being drunk with wine. <laughs> That's what they accused them of being. And it was early morning, so they thought it was pretty, pretty strange. In fact, in the Greek, it, quite literally, they say something like, are you filled with new wine or something? Actually, they were. <laughs> you see, the, the language describing God's spirit is often liquid. He's poured out. It talks about keeping in the flow of the Spirit. Ephesians 5 actually tells us to drink the Spirit. Paul says, don't get drunk on wine. That's no good. Get drunk on the Holy Spirit, he says. And what Jesus is doing in this text is he's placing kind of a a priority on the Spirit, and he's saying the Spirit is going to be the one to lead you and to fill you and to, to make you drunk, to actually bring you joy, which wine we try to get with wine. That's the goal of the new wine. My question this morning for you is, do you have room in your life to receive it? See, I think one of the lessons that we we learn about uh, wineskins in this passage is to value the wine above the wineskins. You value the wineskin, you might actually miss out on the wine. You value the new wine, you will never miss out. You see, when you value the wine above the wineskin, you'll be open to the new thing that God does rather than kind of getting stuck and in your own way, kind of stubbornly, this is where I am and I'm not going to move. As as followers of Jesus, we're to to live lives where we're constantly changing and flexing and ready for the new thing that God wants to do in us and through us and for the world. There's a, a pastor I like who talks about uh, the baptism of Jesus. When Jesus is baptized, you remember what happens? He's standing in the river with John the Baptist, and we're told that a spirit, the spirit comes down on Jesus like a dove. 
I, I like that. It just rested on him. And it, it kind of the, the impression is, is that the Spirit came and just rested there. Can you imagine if that was our experience of the Spirit? Like a dove that was always kind of sitting on our shoulder, just, just perched there. Can, can you, you'd be, if you had a dove on your shoulder, you'd be aware of it. You'd, be, you'd notice that it was there. You'd be mindful of it. You'd be conscious everywhere you'd went, you went in your life. You'd be mindful of the Spirit. You'd make no sudden moves. You wouldn't want to scare the dove off. You'd just, you'd just be walking and, and careful and, and, and cognizant and open. You know, I, had a, I grew up in a church, as I've told many of them before, where we didn't talk about the Holy Spirit. There was a fear of the Holy Spirit. But folks, there's, there's nothing I am more grateful for than in and how over the last 30 years of my life and my journey where I've been open to more and more of what the Spirit wants to do in my life and what He wants to do in our church. What a gift. What a gift. I'm so grateful. You want the Spirit? How do you make room? I'd suggest it has a lot has to do with our, our, our will. We have to yield. We have to let Him kind of make the decisions of our lives. We have to give our our, our, our lives, our whole lives over to him. Anytime you let him lead, anytime you surrender your life to God. See, when you surrender control of your life to the spirit, that goes against the controlling nature of the religious spirit. You understand? When we give up control, <laughs> he can control. He can come in. We're making room for God to put the new wine into. Some of you, man... It's my wish, if I could wish anything for you, is that you would have a, a fresh experience of the Holy Spirit. And I know some of you want it. Why not ask for it? John Piper said, um, you know, when it comes to the Spirit, just drink and keep on drinking. Get drunk on the Spirit. The second metaphor for wine is the blood of Christ. You know, when, when Jesus sits and, and with his disciples and he eats his last meal, there's, there's one thing he says is the sign of the new covenant, and it's wine. He says, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. And you know what really breaks the religious spirit in us? It's the cross. The, the cross forces us to come to terms not only with what our sin is, but also the kind of love that he has for us, all in that moment on the cross. What kind of God leaves his throne to die for humanity? You can't find that anywhere else. You can't ever see that kind of love. And what this does is it removes any right we might hold to our own record of righteousness for his love. That's, that's what the cross demolishes. His love is a gift and, it, and it's your job actually just to receive that gift and and, and it's not earn it. You can't earn it. The Apostle Paul said, any good thing I've done, any virtue I hold is garbage apart from what the blood of Christ is to me. It's dirty rags, all that stuff compared to, to what Jesus has given me. What we say when we see the cross is I couldn't save myself from wrongdoing. I was a slave to sin. I also couldn't do enough, to, to, enough good or, or right things to be righteous on my own. Friends, this is how it is. Jesus fought the battle 
and we get to wear the medals. We get the Medal of Honor. That's what the cross is. Who are the ones who are at the table who are able to receive the gift of the new wine, of the new covenant? It's the ones who needed it and knew it. They didn't have a backup plan. That's all they had. The cross makes all the difference. So the Spirit of God and the cross of Christ, I I think those two are meant to help us reject a religious spirit and be stretched and open to the new wine and the new thing God wants to do in us. Before we pray, uh, one last word. Some of you know who Ludolf Van Sulen was. He was the Dutch mathematician who first uh, calculated pi. He died at the age of 70 in 1610, and he had 3.14, he had pi, and along with another 30 digits, on his tombstone. That was his epitaph. He wanted his proudest achievement to be known to all as he entered eternity. I much prefer the epitaph of Martin Luther King Jr. You know what was on his gravestone? Free at last. Free at last. God Almighty, thank God Almighty, I'm free at last. Let's pray. God, um, We're so grateful, Jesus, that you came and told us and made available to us your kingdom. And your kingdom is the new wine and the new thing that you wanted to do and are doing in our world and you've done in us. And uh, God, uh, occasionally we can be guilty of having a religious spirit. We get stuck in our way of thinking. We get stuck in uh, wanting to, to have you controlled or... Uh, to understand you in a certain way, um, in all kinds of ways, Lord. We're afraid of, of what might be happen if we lost control. We might look ridiculous. We might look like that early church when the Spirit came, accused of looking drunk. Forgive us, Lord. Forgive us for our comparing and for how we measure ourselves against you instead of understanding our great worth that comes from the cross. Lord, I pray, uh, would you do a fresh work in us? Jesus, I pray this morning, would you fill us with your spirit? Would you help us and teach us what it means to drink of your spirit, to, to live in your spirit, to keep in the flow of your spirit, to walk with you every day by your spirit? And God, I pray that the cross of Christ would anchor us and uh, keep us humble and grateful and joyful as we consider what you've given for us. We pray these things together in Jesus' name. Amen.